0: It's Sunday, November 3rd. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. Thank you, my friends. There's been much speculation about the future of Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer.
1: What exactly happened? Yeah, to use a good Canadian analogy, it was like having a breakaway on an open net and missing the net. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting out. We've secured the oil, and therefore a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area.
2: I hope the administration is uh, trying to mitigate... Uh, The damage done.
3: We have an opportunity to do it right. I'm optimistic.
4: The president's misconduct has compelled us to continue to move forward with an impeachment inquiry.
0: Is there a civil war brewing inside the Conservative Party? After an election loss, tensions are running high in Tory circles. And at the centre of it all, Andrew Scheer. As party faithful from across the country question whether the Conservative leader is at fault. Scheer will face his caucus on Wednesday and a leadership review in April. But in the meantime, the public blame game is well underway. With the most notable comment coming from Peter McKay last week.
4: Listen... People did not want to talk about women's reproductive rights. They didn't want to talk about revisiting the issue of same-sex marriage. And yet that was thrust onto the agenda. I think among female voters in particular and those who would have been impacted by any, any, any revisitation, uh, it created a, a nervousness.
0: The next day, Mr. McKay tweeted his support for Mr. Scheer and said his comments were to help the party win in the next election. Well, just how serious is the internal rife over Mr. Scheer's leadership of the party? Joining me now in Toronto, Peter Van Loan, former government house leader under Stephen Harper and in Montreal, Tom Pentefuntes, a former Quebec Conservative candidate in this past election. Some pretty stunning comments from your former colleague Peter McKay. Mr. Van Loan. do you think that he is campaigning to be the next Conservative leader?
2: Well, I, I think he's out, uh, been working very hard for the party. He's, uh, I have to take at face value his insistence that uh, he just wants to uh, support the leader and support the party. and. Uh, I have no reason to question that. I think that uh, though he is expressing some concerns that are out there among people, I'm not sure I agree with all of them. I think that uh, uh, we have uh, good reason to be happy with our election result, with uh, forward progress. I think that's the test of whether a leader can say stay. Andrew Shear has delivered that forward progress with many more seats, actually doing better in the popular vote than the Liberals, so I think he's earned the chance at another go.
0: But he didn't win. IN SOME PRETTY KEY AREAS, INCLUDING THE 905, THE 416, AND QUÉBEC. TOM, YOU'RE OUT IN QUÉBEC. YOU WERE A CONSERVATIVE CANDIDATE uh, IN A PAST ELECTION. DO YOU AGREE THAT MR. SHEAR SHOULD STAY ON AS LEADER OF THE PARTY?
1: THERE WERE FOUR BASIC ELEMENTS THAT um, CREATED THIS TENSION IN QUÉBEC AND THE 905 and, AND TO A CERTAIN EXTENT IN ATLANTIC CANADA, I BELIEVE. Um, THERE WAS THE QUESTION OF uh, THE ISSUE OF ABORTION, THE same sex MARRIAGE, THE uh, CURRICULUM VITAE EMBELLISHMENT. Um, and, uh, and, um, and those three elements came to the fore um, to slow things down. And they created a sense of distrust, unfortunately. And Canadians were anxious uh, and willing uh, and waiting uh, to show Justin Trudeau the door. But unfortunately, we couldn't concentrate on the things that we wanted to concentrate on uh, because all this focus was on the social issues.
0: And Tom, do you believe that that focus on the social issues was a product of Andrew Scheer as the leader? or the party's mistakes?
1: Well, you know, in a cam- campaign is, a, is an interesting uh, entity, and uh, things can happen during the campaign that are not foreseeable, and some other things are manifestly foreseeable. The question on abortion in the uh, French debate was manifestly foreseeable, and you can't take a day to answer that question, because it creates uh, a distrust amongst the population, and a discomfort. And the question of same-sex marriage took us almost a week to respond to that issue. And again, it creates um, an unease amongst the population, especially in 2019. Uh, The dual citizenship was another issue that should have been settled well before the writ was dropped, as was the issue with the the CV. These four elements came together um, to keep us from talking about the things that are important for this country. And that's not going to change in the short term, I fear.
0: So, Peter, what would have to happen for voters in the GTA and areas like that? And you've campaigned around there. You're very familiar with it to convince them that they could vote conservative. And what would Andrew Scheer have to convince the conservative party he's able to do in that particular region of the country, which the electoral math tells us you need in order to win?
2: i think where the weakness of the conservative campaign was was the lack of a defining platform plank that could have been the ballot question some kind of exciting uh, clear challenging issue probably on the economic front or economic growth job creation front taxation front something like that that people could debate and have the election about and absent that kind of issue these other lesser issues that you know, frankly, I think Andrew Sheer had good answers for and really aren't anything that the campaign was about, became nagging concerns and they were able to fill out that space because nothing else was doing that.
0: People say that Andrew Sheer was not able to answer the questions about his social beliefs in a way that convinced voters there wasn't a concern about what he might do when he came into office. There are people around Stephen Harper say, look, Mr. Harper had an answer for this. It was very clear he was able to put it out there. Why wasn't Mr. Sheer able to anticipate those kinds of questions and be prepared with an effective answer, and if he couldn't do it in the two years leading up to this election, what's to say he'll be able to do it before this minority parliament falls?
2: Uh, I think Andrew Scheer basically had the same position as Stephen Harper did, but what Stephen Harper had was, as I said, very clear, dramatic policy positions on things like tackling crime that are important to people in the GTA where we're seeing, because some of Harper's initiatives were rolled back, a rise in gun crime. Things like uh, strong taxation policies. We had a lot of the same ones as, before, little uh, tinkering ones, but nothing major. So it it really is a notion that uh, nature abhors a vacuum, and with that vacuum on other policy questions, these little nagging things which weren't significant, for which I think there were good answers, began to fill that space.
1: Yeah, the night of the TVA debate, uh, that was the coup de grace for us. That was, uh, we continued to fight valiantly, but that, WAS A DEMARCATION POINT FOR US UNFORTUNATELY, AND AFTER THAT, THERE WAS NO COMING BACK. PEOPLE HAVE NO APPETITE FOR THESE ISSUES. Um, I UNDERSTAND uh, Andrew CHIER IS A a CATHOLIC, AS IS uh, JUSTIN TRUDEAU, AND uh, WE UNDERSTAND THE CHURCH'S POSITION, I'M A GREEK ORTHODOX FAITH, I UNDERSTAND MY CHURCH'S POSITION, BUT PUBLIC POLICY IS PUBLIC POLICY, AND THERE HAS TO BE A CLEAR delineation OF THE TWO, AND THAT WASN'T THE CASE, AND THAT CREATED AN UNFORTUNATE MISTRUST, AND I DON'T THINK IN THE CONTEXT OF A MINORITY GOVERNMENT, where Justin Trudeau can decide in April to call an election, and I lived through it, uh, with the ADQ in a minority situation. It can happen at any moment in time when the prime minister senses weakness. um, And that's why we need, um, in the short term, uh, to proceed to a leadership race and have a leader in place who can speak to Canadians and evacuate these social issues first and foremost and can speak to Canadians in both official languages because uh, Francophone Canadians will be more demanding, are more demanding and with good cause uh, as regards the uh, national leader's capacity to speak to uh, one of the founding uh, nations of this country.
0: A last point to both of you, how serious do you think that the move inside the party is to unseat Andrew Shear, starting with you, Peter.
2: Well, it's funny. In the olden days, you used to have to have a kind of insurgency. If you think back to the Clark days and the efforts to displace him, uh, I'm not sure that's the case anymore in political parties. Thomas Mulcair walked into a convention. There wasn't any organized insurgency, and they chose to select a new leader. So we might be in a new kind of era. One of the paradoxes for people who have views like Tom is, if it is going to get into that kind of fight over leadership, uh, Andrew Scheer is inevitably going to be forced to, you know, kind of rely on that social conservative crowd who are pretty good at getting people out to de- delegate selection meetings to bolster his support. So uh, that's one of the uh, ironic paradoxes and difficulties we face. The other thing is in a minority parliament, I think we're going to see probably uh, Justin Trudeau throw some of these difficult social issues on the table early to make life a
1: little bit uncomfortable for Mr. Scheer.
0: Tom, do you think this can go I don't forward know. without I don't destroying know how, the
1: party? I don't know what's happening within the party. Uh, but I can tell you, and people will say if I was in caucus, I wouldn't be speaking publicly. I, I would make my uh, views known in caucus. Uh, but I can tell you amongst the uh, 68 uh, candidates in Quebec that did not get elected, uh, the degree of disappointment is overwhelming. Again, losing an election on things you can't control is one thing. Uh, losing an election on things you can entirely control is uh, completely unacceptable.
0: Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you both for joining us and sharing your views. Thank, Thank you. you. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the world's most wanted terrorist and the brutal leader of ISIS, died after U.S. Special Forces cornered him in a raid in Syria. Critical intelligence for that raid was reportedly provided by the Kurds, who fought at the sharp end of the spear against ISIS as Western allies. And now, many are fleeing for their lives. The UNHCR reports that nearly 180,000 Syrian Kurds have fled the area since Turkey began an assault on the Kurdish-led forces in that part of the country. That assault began shortly after President Trump announced last month he was pulling U.S. troops out, the very same troops who had been closely allied with the Kurds in the fight against ISIS. Joining me now is Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, the Kurdish regional government representative to Washington, D.C. Welcome to the
3: show. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Ms. Robin, I know you've been very busy in these past couple of weeks on Capitol Hill meeting with American lawmakers. What's your message been to them?
3: There are many issues that we're concerned about, uh, security issues, and, of course, humanitarian, which I think sometimes is lost in this conversation about what's happening in Syria.
0: One of the big events that's playing in a lot of people's minds, of course, is the death of uh, Mr. al-Baghdadi, one of the most wanted terrorists in the world, the leader of ISIS. The Kurds have come out and said that they had a key role in that operation, that they provided intelligence. In fact, they may have had an operative who collected Mr. Baghdadi's underwear to verify the DNA test on him can you speak to the role that the Kurdish forces played in terms of working with the US special forces to capture Mr. Baghdadi and ultimately resulting in his taking of his own life
3: I'm very proud of any role that the Kurds have played in this and other operations and I think the takedown of Baghdadi symbolically is very important but it still leaves ISIS uh, as an organization. It doesn't really meet the demands and the need for justice for the, from the victims of ISIS, and especially I'm thinking of the Yazidis and the Christians who suffered genocide at the hands of that uh, terrible organization. Uh, There have been calls in
0: Canada to bring home Canadians who traveled to Iraq and to Syria to fight with ISIS. There's been concern that some of those camps they were being held at by the Kurds have been disrupted by these Turkish offensive operations. What's the situation on the ground right now in terms of those Kurdish camps that were holding ISIS prisoners? Are they still intact or are all those prisoners now still out on the loose?
3: Uh, My understanding is that some prisoners did escape, um, perhaps uh, a week or two ago now. Uh, But otherwise, generally, the uh, camps and the prisons are under control, but even before the announcement by President Trump. These prisons, these camps were a concern, and they remain a concern. The numbers are huge. Uh, Al-Hol camp holds thousands and thousands of people. The conditions aren't very good. Um, It's really—we've been signaling this for a very long time. Uh, These really—and there are camps like that in Iraq, too, by the way. There's no real care. And by care, I I don't mean a luxury lifestyle. What I mean is, there are children in these camps. Okay, their parents are ISIS fighters, and uh, they believe in the ideology. But why aren't we doing something about the children? Otherwise, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, these children will be teenagers, they will be adults. All they will have known is growing up in a camp rampant with ideology that is all about death and destruction. And this will have happened while we, we have let them grow up in this atmosphere so if
0: you were able to speak to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today you would ask the Canadian government to bring the Canadians who fought for ISIS back to Canada
3: I do believe it's the responsibility of every country every government um, to bring back its own nationals and put them on trial Uh, and that would be my message to Prime Minister Trudeau I understand that some countries are concerned that perhaps they don't have enough evidence to convict somebody, uh, that perhaps the laws of certain uh, European and Western countries are such that after 10 years or so, those people would be released. Well, perhaps it's time that you looked at your laws, uh, but you can't just shirk your responsibility and dump these serious global problems on those of us in the Middle East who have to live with it day in, day out.
0: Is there a feeling in the Kurdish community that there's a betrayal here, that the international community is now looking the other way after working so closely with them?
3: 11,000 Kurdish fighters died in Syria, and in Iraq, 2,000 Peshmerga died, and thousands on both sides were injured. So certainly we have paid the price fighting ISIS with our blood. Uh, The international community, of course, has been an important partner with equipping, training, providing uh, resources. But nothing place, replaces blood at the end of the day. We've given enormous sacrifice. Um, so I think that partnership needs to be borne in mind. What will happen
0: if you don't get the access to the humanitarian assistance or military assistance that your people are asking for?
3: We're very concerned that if hundreds of thousands of Syrian Kurds cross over into Iraqi Kurdistan, that we will have a humanitarian catastrophe on our hands, just because we don't have the wherewithal to cope with another new influx. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share our story with you. So we have an opportunity to do it right. We're, up, uh, we're not there yet, but we understand uh, the road that the last, shall we say, mile that we have to go. Yes, I'm unoptimistic.
0: I'm welcome back. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi late last week telling reporters in Washington she's hopeful that Congress will soon sign off on the new NAFTA deal. But top of the agenda in the meantime in the House is the potential impeachment of President Trump. Will Congress get this trade deal passed as they investigate the president? Joining me now from Washington is Chris Sands, Director of the Centre for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks,
4: Mercedes. Good morning.
0: So, Chris, there's about 16 more days sitting for the U.S. House of Representatives in this year. Impeachment top of the agenda. Do you think that USMCA will manage to be passed before the end of the year?
4: I actually am still optimistic that it will be passed. It's a kind of strange tension between impeachment and USMCA as we call it, Kuzma as they're calling it in Canada. The the tension is this. On the one hand, a big part of the Democratic base and a large part of the American people want to see the impeachment process pursued so at least they can find out uh, whether or not Donald Trump was involved in any shady dealings, not only before in the 2016 campaign, but also currently while he's been in office. And there have been some witnesses that have suggested that that is a possibility. On the other hand, an even bigger portion of the electorate, as always, thinks it's the economy stupid. What have you actually done for us to boost the economy? On Friday, we had a jobs report that suggested 128,000 new jobs created in the United States uh, in the previous month. That's a fantastic result. And Donald Trump came out with a commercial, a uh, little ad that he ran on social media that basically said The economy's strong. I got al Baghdadi. Uh, he's dead. I'm not a Mr. Nice Guy, but I'm getting things done, and all the Democrats want to talk about is impeachment. And that tension going into the 2020 campaign, almost a year from now, just about exactly a year from now, is the setup for this election. I think Democrats want to pass USMCA so that they can say, hey, we can do things, we can even do bipartisan things, but THERE IS A RULE OF LAW, IMPEACHMENT MATTERS, AND DONALD TRUMP HAS TO ANSWER FOR for THE BAD THINGS HE'S DONE OR MAY HAVE DONE. Uh, YOU CAN'T JUST WAVE HIM OUT uh, WITH IMMUNITY AND SKIP OUT, SKIP THE INVESTIGATION.
0: IS THERE STILL A RISK THAT PRESIDENT TRUMP WOULD RIP NAFTA UP IF USMCA DOESN'T MAKE IT THROUGH THE HOUSE OR IS THAT THREAT LARGELY OFF THE TABLE NOW? I
4: THINK THE THREAT IS LARGELY OFF THE TABLE. IT WAS ALWAYS HEAVILY DISCOUNTED BY TRADE POLICY EXPERTS IN PART because. Of the ambiguity. NAFTA says you can give six months' notice of withdrawal, uh, and any of the three countries could walk away from the NAFTA commitments. On the other hand, we know that the courts have been willing to block Donald Trump in so many ways. And if you're talking about removing NAFTA benefits, you'd have companies lined up from one end of the country to the other saying, We want to block. Donald Trump from leaving NAFTA, it's just too important to our bottom line.
0: Chris, when it comes to impeachment, we hear a lot about it in the news here. Obviously, we see the American news, but it's not a process that we have in our system the same way. So, Can you walk us through what happens in the impeachment process at this point, how that unfolds, and what it would mean for the Trump presidency?
4: Well, the first thing is the House has now, uh, effective last Thursday, voted uh, to start a formal impeachment inquiry. There was a lot of criticism here that, that they had broken with tradition by having the Intelligence Committee in the House rather than the Judiciary Committee. Uh, RUNNING THE INVESTIGATION, HAVING PRIVATE HEARINGS, THAT IS, CLOSED DOOR, uh, AND SUPPOSEDLY IN SECRECY, NOT EVEN ALLOWING SOME REPUBLICANS TO CROSS-EXAMINE WITNESSES. Uh, NOW WE'VE HAD THE FORMAL VOTE. WE HAVE NEW RULES THAT SHOULD ALLOW REPUBLICANS TO NOT ONLY CROSS-EXAMINE WITNESSES BUT CALL THEIR OWN. SO WE'RE ON WHAT I WOULD NOW SAY IS A MORE NORMAL IMPEACHMENT PROCESS. THE HOUSE WILL CONDUCT AN INVESTIGATION, AND WHEN THEY FEEL THEY HAVE ENOUGH EVIDENCE, THEY WILL BRING ARTICLES OF IMPEACHMENT. NOW, IT'S NOT A LEGAL PROCESS, BUT a Political process. So the articles of impeachment will claim that Donald Trump is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors that have disqualified him from holding the office of president. Once they brought those charges, the impeachment is like an indictment. It's a kind of set of charges that are being brought. It then goes to the Senate, presided over in a very Special procedure by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, who would have to sit with all the senators serving as a kind of giant. JURY, AND THERE WOULD BE A VOTE AT THE END OF uh, A TRIAL, IN EFFECT, uh, WHETHER THE EVIDENCE PRESENTED SUGGESTS THAT DONALD TRUMP SHOULD BE REMOVED FROM OFFICE. NOW, HE HAS TO BE REMOVED BY TWO-THIRDS OF SENATORS. HALF OF THE SENATORS ARE REPUBLICANS, AND THEY ISSUED A LETTER TO NANCY PELOSI, ALL 50 uh, REPUBLICAN SENATORS, SAYING we, WE WILL NOT TREAT THIS PROCESS SERIOUSLY UNLESS YOU HAVE A HOUSE VOTE. YOU SAW THE HOUSE VOTE THIS WEEK. SO THE SENATORS, ESPECIALLY REPUBLICANS, ARE SKEPTICAL. AND YOU WOULD HAVE TO BRING A NUMBER OF THEM ON BOARD to, IN ORDER TO HAVE A SUCCESSFUL uh, IMPEACHMENT CONVICTION, THAT IS TO REMOVE THE PRESIDENT. BUT I THINK WHAT DEMOCRATS ARE AFTER NOW IS NOT SO MUCH the conviction, but the charge. They feel if the indictment goes through, even if it's on a partisan basis, if there's an impeachment of the president, it will hang over his head and it will make it uh, an election issue going in. Do you want this man who's clearly done bad things even though he hasn't been convicted to be reelected, or do you want a fresh face from the Democratic side?
0: Fascinating. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on it. Thanks for joining us today, Chris.
4: You're welcome. Thank you, Mercedes.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.